Welcome to Grow the Pie, the podcast where we ask the tough questions for responsible business. I'm Tom Gosling, Executive Fellow in the Centre for Corporate Governance at London Business School, and I'm with Alex Edmonds, Professor of Finance at London Business School and author of Grow the Pie, How Great Companies Deliver Both Purpose and Profit. Uh, Alex, hello again. It's great to be back, Tom. So throughout this series, we've looked at the evidence for how companies and investors working together to grow the pie can create value, not just for themselves, but for wider society. We've looked at the evidence relating to issues such as CEO pay, share buybacks and investor activism, and found that these often demonized factors actually frequently help to grow the pie for all stakeholders. And we've talked through a practical decision-making framework for business leaders wanting to grow the pie based on the principles of multiplication, comparative advantage, and materiality. In today's episode, we're going to broaden the field of view and talk about how a pie-growing mindset applies more widely to issues faced by society. We're going to start with the role of citizens in growing the pie and then move to the application of the principles from a broader perspective. So Alex, if we start first of all with the role of citizens, I I think the one that is sort of most closely connected to the role of companies is citizens as employees. So how do you see the role of employees in helping to grow the pie? I think the role is is a major one because we often think that companies are so massive and employees are are so small that they're really powerless to affect the companies that they are working for. But actually, employees have have a large effect on on companies in two ways. So when we talked about investors a couple of weeks ago, we talked about investors can choose which companies to buy to begin with. And then secondly, they can engage with companies after choosing to invest in them. And I think that those same two mechanisms apply to employees. So first is the choice of employer. Now, this might seem quite natural, but actually many people might choose a job based on the salary or the career prospects. But whether that company accords with your values will have a major impact, number one, on your success because it will affect your motivation to work for the company. And number two, the company's long-term livelihood. For example, the issues with Wells Fargo, they had been predicted a few years previously in newspaper articles on their selling practices. And that did manifest in the fake bank account scandal which has led to them having to cut a number of jobs. So one of them is choosing the employer that you're working for. And the second is your ability to engage with companies having chosen to work for them. And this is uh, actually becoming a very live issue, isn't it, for employers, with employees seeming ever more willing to make their views known about the type of company they work for and, and its own policies. And we've seen some recent examples of that, haven't we? Yeah, we have. And we can see employees in terms of agents in in two ways. First is calling out negative behavior. And then I'd say, secondly, they can also be more constructive and and try to promote good behavior. So an example of of the former, which I discussed in the book, was a cleaner called Abdul Durant. So he worked for HSBC. He cleaned the London offices of HSBC every night, including that of the chairman. But he was just paid £5 an hour and had five children, and he struggled to send those children to school. So at the AGM, he braved himself to stand up and address Sir John, saying he cleaned his office. He said that despite working so hard every day of the week, he couldn't send his children to school. And Sir John was really moved by this and then gave the cleaners a 28% pay rise the next year. 
Now, you might think, well, why was Abdul Durant needed to do this? Shouldn't Sir John have noticed that uh, pay is important? I think any responsible leader does know the importance of high pay, of fair pay to their workers. But I think it just makes it much more human when somebody like Abdul was willing to say, well, just the extent of how much uh, his life was difficult because of the low pay that he was getting. Mm. What's interesting about this is that in previous episodes, you've talked about the responsibility and indeed the benefits for a company in treating its employees well. But you are suggesting that for a true pie-going mindset, there's an element of reciprocal responsibility here from employees as well. Yes, I am, because I think the responsibility is in both directions. And so this is why I, I like the pie-growing idea, is not only does that mean that the fruits of the pie can be shared between many different stakeholders, but also those different stakeholders have the responsibility together to grow the pie. And, and so part of it is holding managers to account for bad behaviour, but part of it is also contributing towards good behaviour, because it's not necessarily just the leaders of an organisation who can repurpose a business and, and, and change it for the better. So, so one thing we've seen in the pandemic was just the power of ordinary citizens to, to have a major effect. So Captain Sir Tom Moore, just by walking around his garden, raised £30 million for charity, but also more generally inspired other people because people saw what he was doing and thought themselves, well, what can I do in terms of, of my bit? And I think what happened here wasn't that everybody was selfish and then suddenly became selfless. It was just the actions of a couple of people ignited the selflessness within that was inherent within somebody and then encouraged them to do the same. And that could also happen at a local level. So I know, Tom, you've been doing shopping for your, your neighbours and that if other people hear about that, that's something that can have a multiplicative effect. And so I think this also applies at the company level. So just an example from my own background, when I joined Morgan Stanley as an investment banker, I was the most junior person and I was analyst, which is the lowest rung of the ladder. And it's tempting to think you can't do anything to change the atmosphere because nobody works for you. But I realized that actually people did work for me. There was my assistant, there was the print room, there was the IT team, and there was perhaps the most abused department in an investment bank, which is known as graphics or, or creative services. So what you do is that you give them a PowerPoint markup um, for them to input the changes. Often analysts shout at creative services because they didn't do what the analyst hoped, even though it's um, often the analyst's fault for not explaining it correctly. But there were times that I got a good um, job back from creative services and I'd call them up and I'd say, Hi, this is Alex, who worked on my job. And they'd say, well, it was Juliet. And I'd say, could you put me through to Juliet? And they did. And I said, hi, Juliet, this is Alex. You just worked in this job. By the way, you did an outstanding job. Here were all the things that were good. And I didn't even ask you to do this, but you just did this of your own accord. Now, I didn't do this in an ostensible manner, but it just so happened that because I was so junior, I didn't have my own office. So I was on the open plan floor. And, and other analysts heard me doing this and they thought, well, oh, maybe I can just do this myself. And while I won't say I changed the entire company, at least in the small bubble around me, that changed the atmosphere a little bit from something which was always a lot of pressure, a lot of negativity, sometimes a blame culture to a culture where we would actually 
call out good work in other people. And that wasn't just the creative services department. Then it would happen within the banking team that people would give credit to each other for, for good work. Uh, I can imagine Juliet probably almost fell off her chair when she got this feedback. I, I, I bet it was the first time anything like that had happened. And, and how, how do you see this extending to the role of consumers and their sort of reciprocal obligations with, with companies? Yeah, so with, with consumers, again, you've got um, the power in two ways. So first is what products to buy to begin with. And, and already there are obviously consumers making choices on stuff such as traditional versus organic farming or whether something is locally grown or imported. But more generally, there are apps now such as Bicot or Good On You, which allow you to put your values in and then they will tell you when you scan a barcode whether that product is um, consistent with the values. But then the analogy of the engagement idea is also very powerful because often, how do customers engage with companies? It's always often to provide negative feedback. That's the equivalent of telling creative services when they did a bad job. But there's also a lot of power to provide positive feedback. So we now have customer review websites and the power of customers to contribute both positive and negative feedback is, is substantial. And uh, th- this is something which will affect other people's purchasing decisions in a way that customers never had the power to do so in the past. But it might also be that if you deal with somebody and just provide their, their feedback to um, the boss, I might have discussed in a previous episode that I'm a client of Barry's Bootcamp, this uh, really brutal gym in London. There's various different trainers that I, I take. Management is not able to get to every class and see the trainers firsthand. So if, I, if I've taken a particularly good trainer to write to management to say, well, this is why they were good and these are all the positive actions. And that helps because it means then those trainers get put into more prime time slots and so forth. And, and so I think this is a big virtuous circle. And, and I think there is a, a case as well for uh, where there are organizations who are, who are doing things that accord with your values, also providing feedback in relation to the quality of their core product rather than you know just accepting the compromise of it if it's lower quality. Because there was some very interesting research that Unilever did that found that consumers are prepared to make ethical purchasing choices, but then they don't have an unlimited willingness to compromise on the quality of the core product they're trying to get. So yeah, organizations have to get it right on both fronts, really, don't they? And consumers can really help with that, I feel. They can. And and it's really easy if you're a consumer and you don't like something to complain about it. It's almost cathartic to do that or to walk away. And and certainly you you can walk away if management is intransigent, but it's often more constructive to provide positive feedback. And and what was really striking about the the feedback that I provided to the Barry's management is they would always reply, and not a perfunctory reply, but they would reply in detail to my feedback. I think what this reflected was not many clients did provide feedback. So if you do, it is genuinely valued. And also if not many other people are, are providing feedback, then you actually have a large input in it because you're one of only a few people influencing their choice of, of trainers and how they choose to, to run classes and so forth. I'd like to come on to a particular category of consumer now, which, which links back to our discussion uh, in recent podcasts around the role of investors. And, and this is the consumer as retail investor or as beneficiary of a, of a pension scheme, for example. Because The consumer in this context can potentially play a very important role at the end of the stewardship chain to really help strive stewardship all through the chain. How how do you see that working in practice? 
Yeah, so this is really important because we've talked in the past as, uh, of a chain running from CEO of a company to the investors or asset managers that hold them to account by voting and by their trading decisions. But in turn, the asset managers are selected by asset owners such as pension funds. And then in turn, the asset owners will maximize value according to the beneficiaries' preferences. And the beneficiaries could be employees who are participating within a pension scheme. And why I say maximizing value why I chose the word value rather than wealth is that these beneficiaries might not just care about financial wealth in terms of the investment return, but they might also care about the types of companies that they're investing in, whether those companies do things such as curb climate change or promote meaningful work and diversity. But it's in order for the pension fund to appropriately reflect the values and the objectives of beneficiaries, they need to play a part in this by being able to express their wishes. So there are some pension funds which do survey beneficiaries to find out, well, what are the particular things that they care about? And again, it's very easy as investors, as, well, as beneficiaries to disengage from this and think, well, why does this really matter? But one thing that we've tried to highlight in this whole podcast series is, is just how the entire system works, is that as a beneficiary of your pension fund, your money gets put in the pot, that pot gets allocated to an asset manager. That asset manager chooses to buy particular companies and support their business models and chooses not to buy other companies and not provide them capital. They will vote on important decisions such as executive pay. They might vote, hopefully, if we get our idea in practice, they might vote on the company's purpose. And they will engage with management on issues such as can you do this to reduce your carbon footprint or to ensure that you treat your workers better. Now, you can't have an investor solving every single one of a company's problems. But if beneficiaries are able to highlight the main priority engagement areas, that will affect what the asset manager does. And indeed, and I serve on the Responsible Investment Advisory Committee for Royal London Asset Management. And in our quarterly meetings with the investment team, we will discuss what we think the priority issues are that beneficiaries are caring about. I think it's interesting that we often forget that we are, as individuals, the end consumer in this asset management chain, whether it's through our ISA holdings, our pension fund membership, or, or, or our pension fund holdings. And um, if we aren't prepared to make our views known, then we can't expect intermediaries in that chain magically to adopt the policies that we want. But if, if we move it on from pension beneficiaries to the sort of the private retail investor opening an ISA or taking out a personal pension, how should they be enacting this, this pie-growing mindset in the choices that they make? So I think savers can do a number of things. So number one is when they evaluate which asset managers to put their money with, they could look at not just recent financial performance. So clearly, recent financial performance is one type of information. But I like to stress there's lots of other relevant types of information, which, again, I believe savers now have even more access to than they, they did in the past. For example, they can see their holdings of particular companies. So Neil Woodford's funds, um, they held a lot of tobacco. I'm not going to say, well, this caused the collapse of the Woodford fund, but that was something where if you're an investor and you had particular social values, you might have avoided his, his funds. But in addition to the underlying holdings, there's also information on stewardship. So Share Action is an organization 
which has some ratings of the stewardship that investors will have. And also there will be in the prospectus some details of the actual process through which they ensure they're investing responsibly. So again, not just to overplay Royal London Asset Management, just because I know them well, and they all talk about the fact we do have this independent committee, which will provide another set of inputs into the investment decision and one where we never talk about the financial performance of companies, but we only will focus on the ethicality and whether we believe the company creates a net benefit for society. So I think one of the things that's going to prove challenging here for the end retail investor is that whilst, as you say, there's lots of information out there, it currently takes a significant amount of work for uh, an investor to sort of analyse it, process it, figure out you know, what's what's real from what's marketing guff. And I think that there is a role here for uh, regulators, particularly the FCA, to to look at how some of this information can be provided in a in an easy to use form, but which also isn't subject to distortion. And, and I think that does bring us on a little bit now to the role of policymakers in growing the pie and, and, and how they can help. And you do identify actually disclosure standards as being one of the ways in which policy can be really beneficial. But what are, what are, what are one of the key areas that you'd like to highlight about that policymakers should be focusing on from a growing the pie perspective? I think one theme that we've highlighted throughout this podcast is the importance of using rigorous evidence. So we've said, well, rigorous evidence should be used by investors when investors choose their selection of companies. We said it should be used by boards when boards think about how to pay executives. And certainly the use of rigorous evidence is critical for policymakers. So what are policymakers trying to do? They're trying to set policy in order to repurpose business. But diagnosis always precedes treatment before we know what is the optimal remedy, we want to find out, well, is the problem a severe problem to begin with? And there are some really good examples of this. So we discussed a couple of episodes ago how the UK government, before choosing whether or not to regulate share buybacks, they commissioned a a large-scale study that um, you and I did with some of your colleagues at PwC to see, well, is this an actual problem? What we see, a lot of media claims that buybacks might have caused underinvestment. Maybe there were even examples where that was the case. But the problem with policy is because it affects lots and lots of firms. You need to make sure it's not just a few bad apples, but it's the entire cart before you're choosing to change regulation on that. Now, the the challenge here is that sometimes public opinion on an issue could be so strong that you, you might think, well, we don't even need evidence to begin with. Or you think that the evidence is so clear that you've already decided what the correct policy is. And then in the evidence gathering phase, you will just handpick the evidence that supports the policy that you think needs to be done. And so this is one particular issue with the European Commission at the moment. So they have just released a report on sustainable corporate governance. I commend them for really wanting to ensure that corporate governance is for wider society, not just short-term profit. But the quality of the evidence in their study is is really, really poor. Some of it would not even pass a first-year PhD student paper. I have provided feedback on this report. There's a public consultation phase. But it is interesting, it's not just me, it's many other bodies from very different backgrounds, not just academia, some are directors, some are lawyers from different countries highlighting the problem. And what it seems to be is that they've already decided what policies they want to implement and then reverse engineered the evidence to support that. 
But that's really bad policy and that's not going to be good for the long-term profitability and the long-term success of European stock markets, which are already lagging behind the US and, and China. So I think we want to start with a blank sheet of paper, not have preconceptions. We can have preconceptions as to what the issues are, but we want to look at, well, are those preconceptions supported by the data? And so I'd really encourage policymakers to have an open mind to that and rely on the most rigorous evidence and not be afraid to admit some inconvenient truths. I think linked to what you've just said there is this problem that policy is often driven by specific events and examples and and a reaction to those. And you draw out the sort of interesting point about sort of ex ante versus ex post and how, you know, a policy that might seem to prevent something that's happened after the event might actually have more damaging impacts on an ex ante basis. Can you just elaborate on that a bit? Because I think it's a very interesting point. Yeah, certainly. So, so what does ex post mean? Ex post means uh, trying to solve a problem that has already happened. But ex ante is before that event has happened, uh, how can you affect the incentives to take that event? So that might seem still a little bit abstract. So let me give an example. Uh, so let's take the um, example of share buybacks, just because we, we've used that example already. So people are concerned that companies are spending too much money on share buybacks, which they could otherwise invest in their employees. So one ex-post solution to that would be, well, let's ban companies from undertaking share buybacks. Okay, that might be a simple way to get them to invest more in their employees. But the ex-ante consequence of that would be that if companies knew that they were never able to buy back their shares, they might not issue shares to begin with, right? Because one of the, the, the advantages of issuing shares is that, well, if those shares become undervalued, you can buy them back. And if you never had that option to begin with, then companies would not finance themselves with shares. They'd finance themselves with raising debt, which would perhaps be even worse for the economy. Again, by analogy, so let's say if I have a credit card and I was suddenly barred from ever paying back the full amount, if a law prevented me from doing anything more than the minimum payment, I wouldn't borrow and I wouldn't buy to begin with. And so we need to take into account the ex ante effects that a regulation might have. It might seem, given where we are now, yes, the regulation would solve problems. But if you had the regulation, we wouldn't even be in this place to begin with because somebody might never have used their credit card or somebody might never have issued equity if they knew that they could never buy back their shares afterwards. And I'd like to come on to a further example of this that you refer to in your book, which I thought was absolutely fascinating in the context of of COVID-19. And we've seen very different approaches being taken in most European economies versus the US, where in the European economies, there's been a large focus on preserving current employment, uh, whereas in the US, there's been a little bit more emphasis on financially supporting people who are displaced from employment. And there's some very interesting research evidence that you highlighted in the book around you know, the effectiveness of retraining and so on and so forth. Can you just talk about that a bit? Because I think it's very relevant to the current situation we face. Yes, this is a really important question because we discussed in prior episodes how a responsible company doesn't have the responsibility to preserve full employment. It may well be that at some point in time you have to let employees go because if you're a sector which is over capacity, it's good for the economy if you allow your employees to be released so that they can find some jobs elsewhere. 
But as you say, Tom, what is critical is for there to be retraining to help those employees find new jobs. Now, one of the really difficult questions is to figure out, are these retraining programs actually successful in finding people new jobs? Now, you might think, well, isn't there an easy way of doing this? Right? You could look at people who go to the retraining programs. You might take a control group of people who were made redundant and didn't go into the retraining programs and compare the two. And you might think, we've got a treatment and a control here. Can't we get some good answers to that? The answer is unfortunately no, because you might think that it's the people who have much greater work ethic, who are much more go-getters, who are participating in the retraining program. So what we attribute to the retraining program is just the person's hard work ethic. As you say, Tom, there's a great paper which looked at the causal effect by Ben Hyman. He looked at the U.S. Trade Adjustment Assistance Program, which helps displaced employees get new jobs if they were laid off by a company whose sales declined due to either imports or offshoring. Now, the clever thing that Ben noticed is that whether the company declined in sales due to imports or offshoring was human judgment. And there was a difference between the different humans who worked for this program in terms of whether they were more stringent or less stringent in judging whether somebody qualified for the program. So when you apply for the program, you're randomly assigned to one of these adjudicators. And if you are randomly assigned to be a more lenient person, then you're more likely to participate in the program. So because that was randomly assigned, that was able to find what is the causal effect of participating in the program. And this was found to be substantial. It was $50,000 over 10 years. And about one third of this was due to higher wages, but the remainder was due to a greater likelihood of finding a job. So that showed that this retraining was indeed something which had a significant effect on people's future livelihoods. Why I like this example is, is not just because it's relevant to COVID, but it brings together a number of the themes you, you've described around the role of policymakers. So that given that we all want to you know, make sure that there's not a huge scarring impact from unemployment arising from this crisis, we might be tempted to you know, focus on the presenting issue, which is you know, preventing firms from cutting jobs. But actually... What you've highlighted here is research that suggests that the better long-term answer for society, including those employees potentially who might be made redundant, is effective retraining to support redeployment across the economy. And so we have to be careful to look at this both on a systems basis, but also looking at the evidence uh, overall. So I I thought that was a particularly relevant example. Thank you. Just to to move on to another sort of group, which I think is a little bit harder. I I felt in your book, it was sort of this this is where you were getting sort of slightly optimistic, which was this uh, the role of influencers. So these are people sometimes self-appointed as commentators and influencers on on policy. And you have some words of advice for them as well. Yeah. So who is an influencer? So that could be many a different category. So the main one is, is the media, because the articles that are written have a huge effect on people's perception on things such as the fairness of executive pay or the fairness of stock buybacks, and then will affect the calls that people make for regulation to be passed. And that has then a feedback effect, because often policymakers might respond to what the electorate is calling for, even if this is not backed up by evidence. And there might be other influences, such as public intellectuals. So this could be professors who write books, but it could also be people who have a large public platform 
platform, it might not be in responsible business, but it's very tempting to pivot and start speaking about responsible business, even without expertise in this, because this is an issue of the day. And, And obviously, anybody with that platform, they should be relevant. But regardless of what type of influencer you are, the main important thing is to ensure that it's based on the highest quality evidence, because you are powerful, just like a policymaker, you influence policy. And so what we do is we I highlight um, the importance of looking at the highest quality evidence that uh, often what might seem to be true might not be borne out by the data. And as we discussed in the second episode, there are simple ways for even really busy journalists with tight deadlines to figure out whether a research paper is reliable. For example, you can look up whether it's published in a top peer-reviewed journal. There are ready-to-go lists like the Financial Times Top 50 list of the best peer review journal. So you don't need to review every paper yourself to scrutinize its methodology, but you can stand on the shoulder of giants and see, well, has it already been reviewed by some of the world's best experts in the field? Because that's what academic peer review does. And that, indeed, you are, um, have produced a very, very helpful um, guide on this uh, for journalists, which will uh, shortly be available on the Center for Corporate Governance website. And I, I can see how that sort of thinking might have resonance for a profession like journalism, which still has a, a culture of professionalism and professional standards. But how can we get this message home or, or how can it have practical applicability in a world of, you know, Twitter and YouTube where you know, anybody can stand up and make their point of view known and actually the incentives sometimes can be geared towards being outrageous and controversial rather than evidence-based and measured? I think it needs to go back to the the end citizen. So I'm an economist and I believe in demand and supply. And you're absolutely right, Tom, is if you are a guru or a public intellectual, it's not in your interest to to follow the evidence-based and nuanced idea that I've said, because if you have an extreme position, then supporters of that position will like you or retweet you and, and so forth. And there is this psychological bias known as black or white thinking, where you are likely to view an issue as either good or bad. So somebody who has one of those perspectives is going to be in accordance with your view on this issue. So I think what's important is for for underlying consumers just to think about, well, we are going to try to follow and listen to people who provide balanced perspectives is to recognize that many of these complicated issues are not black or white. They are different shades of gray and not to follow or not to share stuff which is very partisan. So We have seen a little bit of this in the coronavirus pandemic where people are being a little bit more discerning about evidence. And if that same discernment could also apply to issues of responsible business, where it's just too easy to say companies are always evil, or even on the flip side, our companies are always good and the people who are complaining about them are just completely uninformed. So when um, there was the referendum for for Brexit, I was a a strong supporter of Remain. Uh, It was very tempting for me to think that anybody who was a Brexiteer was just uninformed or xenophobic and so on. So what I wanted to do was to actually find out, well, what are the most sensible arguments that I can see for Brexit? And so I read and went to talks by some really leading Brexit thinkers. And so what that meant is, number one, that I was more informed is that I actually realised, yeah, that there might be actually some positive reasons for Brexit. I might not agree with those reasons. But then number two, if I'm going to get into a debate with somebody as to why I think the UK should stay in the EU, knowing what their true arguments are 
rather than what people had caricatured their arguments for being, that allowed me to be a much more effective opponent of Brexit when I knew that their, their true arguments rather than just assuming what they were. In the final chapter of your book, you um, draw analogies between your thinking on growing the pie and, and, and some other ideas in economics and indeed in sort of personal development and, and careers. I think our listeners will be familiar with some of these, uh, in particular the analogy between growing the pie and, and the theory of comparative advantage in, in trade, where trade helps everybody grow the pie. Similarly, with the lump of labour fallacy uh, in employment, where we can't hold this idea that there's just a single amount of labour, but that actually is the population grows supply and demand to as well. But I think there may be less familiarity in the analogies that you make with interpersonal dynamics and growth mindset and with career choice. So perhaps we could just get your thoughts on, on each of those. Thanks, Tom. Yeah, I'll, I'll start with interpersonal dynamics. And this is something where I've actually been um, speaking to my students about for the last maybe about five, five to eight years in a final lecture that, that I give at the end of my finance class. I do think it's something uh, which resonates and, and, and is important. So often people get into this comparison mindset. So this is really easy nowadays because of, of the internet and, uh, and social media and so forth. So if somebody does well, you automatically think, well, that means that I'm doing badly. We use other people as a benchmark for ourselves. And if that's the case, we find it genuinely really hard to feel happy for other people, in particular to feel happy for our friends, because our friends are the people who I think are our closest comparators. And this is sometimes known as, as the crab mentality, where if you have crabs which are in a bucket and one crab tries to escape, then the other crabs will pull that crab down because you don't want people who are doing better than you. And what's the reason for that? It could be the fixed pie mindset, the fact that if somebody else is doing better than you, then, well, that means that you're automatically doing worse. So what I wanted to highlight is, well, the whole idea of growing the pie, that pie growing idea, is something which means that somebody's happiness is not at the expense of you. For example, if uh, another professor publishes way more papers than me in corporate governance, well, maybe I might think, oh, that's bad because I'm no longer the number one corporate governance person in the world, which I would have never been to begin with, but I could think like negatively. Or I could think, oh, this person has some great research. Let me blog about their research on my blog because this is consistent with my personal purpose of the creation and dissemination of knowledge. So I think it's to view something from a different angle realize that somebody else's success is not at your expense and therefore you will cherish it rather than feeling resentful of it and that is also i guess linked with what you have to say about growth mindset isn't it it's, it's a similar argument yeah, so the growth mindset, that is similar to the interpersonal dynamics, but on a purely individual level. So some people might be familiar with this book by Carol Dweck on mindset, where she has both the fixed mindset and the growth mindset, which are, are loosely like um, the fixed pie mentality and the pie growing mentality. So what the fixed mindset is, is that you're born with particular attributes. So it could be certain people are natural public speakers and others are not. And the growth mindset is that you can actually develop particular attributes through a lot of hard work. Now, it's really tempting to have the fixed mindset because it means that if you don't have a talent, if you're not born a public speaker, then you just don't have that talent. There's no challenge for you to work on it because there's no way of developing it. But the growth mindset says, well, there's a lot of attributes that you might be able to develop with a lot of hard work 
and a willingness to fail because in order to try something like public speaking, which you haven't done before, there will be possibilities that you'll fail the first few times. And that's something which has analogies to the business setting, which most of the book is about. Right? It's really tempting to think there is a fixed pie, because then as a leader, the way you can make more profit is you can hike prices, you can cut wages. You can do that really simply without having to invest in new ideas. If you launch some new ideas, some of them might fail. Right, Just like if you were to start public speaking without much training or expertise, you're going to fail. But the long-term growth from growing the pie is going to be much higher. So the effort and the possibility of failure is definitely worth it for both the individual and the company. The final topic, Alex, that you cover in your book, um, and one that you gave one of your Gresham uh, lectures on, it relates to the application of growing the pie to career choices. Uh, you know, and I thought this was was very interesting because I think sometimes people feel under pressure to kind of choose a you know a magnificent and purposeful career, but it doesn't always seem so easy to do when uh, people face sort of financial constraints and and not unlimited um, job opportunities. So. Uh, can you just share some of your thinking about how the pie-growing mindset can be applied to career choice? Because I do, I do think some of our listeners will find that very helpful. Thanks, Tom. So what the book has emphasised at the company level is the importance of a company having a purpose. But many listeners will already be familiar with the importance of purpose at a personal level. So often people ask themselves, what is my purpose? So what we said at the company level is that if you serve a purpose first, so to make medicines that transform citizens' health, then ultimately you will become successful as a byproduct. And similarly for a citizen, yes, you do need to uh, have a career which is financially secure, but if you choose a career based on purpose, then ultimately you will be successful because you're going to do something that you love. And then I like the last point that you made, Tom, which was about um, purpose doesn't mean necessarily everybody being in a soup kitchen. So what we highlighted at the company level is that one of the main ways in which a company serves society is through its core business rather than necessarily giving a lot of money to charity. And similarly, there's many careers that a lot of people might see as not being particularly pie-growing which actually do create a lot of value for society if indeed you do them in a purposeful way. So going back to my old career of, of Morgan Stanley of investment banking, right? people think investment banking is, is one of the most evil careers. But actually, what are you doing as an investment banker? You are a trusted advisor to your client. So there are some companies right now which might go to their investment bank saying, I'm in real trouble because of the pandemic. Do I issue equity? Do I raise debt? Do I sell a division? Do I put my whole company up for sale? And you are trusted as the advisor to tell them what to do, even if it doesn't maximize your fee income, as long as it's something which is in the best interest of the client. And that's something that some people will find really hard because sometimes the answer to that question might not be what the client wants to hear. Right? It might be, oh, you know this new strategy that you launched two years ago. It's just not working. You need to reverse that strategy. And similarly, there will be people, let's say some of my business school students, who within their study group are the people willing to have the tough conversations with the rest of their study group and say, look, oh, you're not actually pulling your weight. Now, those people, I think, will flourish in an advisory career where you have to be honest and give people the advice that is most pertinent, even if it's not the sort of the, the nicest and fluffiest advice, whereas there's other people who might find those conversations difficult 
And if you find those conversations difficult, don't go into investment banking. So regardless of how lucrative this career is, if being a trusted advisor is not one of your core strengths and comparative advantages, because it's not something you like to apply in your daily life, then it's probably something which would not be a purposeful career for you. I think that's very, very helpful advice. And I think that rather than perhaps focusing on finding a career that's purposeful, what you're saying is focus on what you're good at and then figure out how to do that in a purposeful way. And I, and I think that's quite a different and insightful way of looking at it. So thank you, Alex. I think you've ably demonstrated that the principles of economics align well with, with principles of growth and mutual advantage in a, in a range of areas. And there's a lot we can learn from your ideas about how we uh, live our lives in a range of perspectives. So to remind listeners, you can buy the book and access a whole load of great related resources at growthepie.net and up next we have a bonus episode to celebrate the 50th anniversary of Milton Friedman's famous article on the role of the corporation so do tune in for that and thank you for listening